Uh, do, do you know any rule followers? Raise your hand if you know any rule followers, like people who like seriously like followers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay, that was, that was funny. Good job. <laughs> um, one of our uh, children growing up, I won't tell you which one, but one of them, um, when, when, when he was younger, it was a serious uh, rule follower, like strict, hardcore rule follower. Whatever the rule was, he was going to follow that. And, and I think that the worst time period for rule followers, if you know a rule follower, you had a kid that was a rule follower, I think the worst time period is w- when they are learning to drive. Because there are just so many opportunities for rule followers to be um, unhappy with everybody else in their life who are not following the rules the way they think they should be um, followed. And, and so when, um, when this one of my three sons uh, was in the vehicle with Andrea or I, um, or, and this is where the real fireworks happened, um, um, with one of the other siblings who were already driving, um, it was his responsibility, nay, his his job to point out every single rule that he felt like the rest of us broke in, in the car. Now, if you're a driver, if you've been driving for a long time, you know that there are some times, there are some occasions when you can um, break the rules. Um, and, and hopefully they're not, you know, it doesn't happen often. But if I am driving in a two-lane road going the same direction, let's say to Wichita, and I look in my rearview mirror and there are no vehicles behind me, I might not use my blinker. Which apparently is a cardinal sin uh, to, to, to my child at, at the time. It was just, was really, really um, not good. And so it made for lots and lots of conflicts. And I remember, you know, other siblings coming home. It's like, I'm not riding in the vehicle with him. And he, like, he cannot come with me because everything I do is, is wrong. It's, I'm breaking the rules um, uh, somehow. And, and so, you, you know, maybe rule followers um, like that in, in your life who are just, they just really want to make sure that you do things the right way. For thousands of years, the people of Israel had been practicing their rule-following skills. And so imagine the rule-follower in your life being compounded by millions of people who all just followed the, the rules. They had become experts as a nation at following the rules themselves and then pointing out to everyone else around them how they were breaking the rules. And so it was, uh, it, was a, it was a challenge. And the biggest challenge came when Jesus came along. When he began his ministry at about 30 years old, the religious leaders, the Jewish people, looked at Jesus as somebody who was flaunting the rules. Who, who didn't care about the, the rules that the people of Israel had been following for thousands of years, right? God gives Moses the, the rules on Mount Sinai. He says, this is how you're supposed to live. And the people had worked diligently at following, following those rules uh, to a T. 
And then Jesus comes along and, and he, he's a rule breaker. He's breaking the rules. And the people are like, hey, you, you can't do that. Let me give you some um, ex- examples of this. Um, Jesus is presented, at, at this point, Jesus is considered by many um, people to be a rabbi. So he is a teacher of the law. And what's the law? It's a list of rules. This is what you're supposed to do. And so Jesus now, because he has disciples and he's teaching, he's talking about the law, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Torah, as we, as we call it. Um, he's teaching on those things. And so he's considered a rabbi or a Jewish teacher. And so uh, other Jewish teachers bring to him a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And the law, the rule said that she should be killed for that sin. And they bring her to Jesus and they say, this is what the law says, Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to follow the rule or are you going to break the rule? That's really how they looked at it. And Jesus refuses to condemn this adulterous woman. He flaunts the law. He breaks the law. Jesus also touches a man, we talked about this thing last week, he touches a man with leprosy against the law. Like you couldn't do that. If you did that, you were then unclean and you couldn't worship and you couldn't do the things that Jesus then went on to do. And so he breaks the law. He then goes on, and and this is one of the things I think infuriated them the most. He goes on to point out the rule followers' self-righteousness which in itself is a violation of the rules. And so basically he said, you guys who are following the rules and telling me about all the rules that I'm breaking, you are breaking the rule. You're not following the rules that you're supposed to be protecting. And Jesus got into so much trouble with the religious leaders of his day because he understood that the gospel is not about rules, it's about relationships. The gospel isn't about rules, it's about relationships. And all the Jewish nation was just trying to follow the rules. And in following the rules, they completely destroyed the relationships that they had with the people around them. See, everywhere Jesus went and everything he did was centered around relationships. When he was asked what the greatest rule was, Religious leaders came to him and said, teacher, what is the greatest command? What's the greatest rule out there? He said, the greatest rule is really two rules in one. The first one is to love the Lord your God. Tristan just read it with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And they were like, yeah, right on. That's the number one rule. And then he said, you're also to love your neighbor as yourself. And they were like, yeah, that's good. But... But they had completely rejected the second half of that in favor of the first half. They loved to follow the rules. They really didn't do so well with the relationships. And so what happened? I was thinking about this. What actually happened when Jesus says, love God and love others, and he basically puts those on the same plane? He says, these two are equally important. What does he, what does he do when he does that? I think... I think Jesus, when he said that, shifted the entire metric for what it means to be a follower of God. 
See, up to that point, being a follower of God was really just about a, 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 your ability, an individual's ability to follow the rules, to do the things that God said to do, and to avoid the things that God said to avoid. And as long as you were doing the things that God said to do, you were okay. And, and so in, in Jewish Old Testament law, in the sacrificial system, if you sinned, then you would make a sacrifice. That was the law. And so you, there were all kinds of sacrifices. There were uh, sacrifices of generosity. There were um, burnt sacrifices. There were sin offerings. There were all of these different things to cover all of the different emotional kind of whatever that you might get into. And so if you sin in some way, you simply gave the appropriate sacrifice and then you were okay. So what happened was, they would sin and make a sacrifice. And then the next day or the next week, they would sin that same sin again and they'd make the sacrifice. And they thought, as long as I'm following the rules, I don't have to change my life. I could keep sinning as long as I perform the appropriate sacrifice, as long as I follow the rules. And so Jesus comes along, and he's like, no longer is a person's religious a religion going to be based on their ability to do everything right. From now on, religion is going to be measured in relationships, in how well we love others. That changed things for the people of Israel. We, we could say it this way. That the question at the end of the day is not, how good was I today? Because that's the way the religious leaders, the religious elite ended every day. How good was I today? Well, I fasted and I prayed and I gave and I did this and I did, and I did my alms. I did the things that I was supposed to do. And so I'm a good person. God accepts me. And in Jesus, it's like no longer is the question, how good was I today? But really the question becomes, how much good did I do for somebody else today? Is my religion about following the rules or is my religion more about fostering relationships? So we talk about, in this series, we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple of, of Jesus, and we're learning about that through the, the gospel of Mark. And, and Mark is probably the first gospel book that was written. It's very succinct. He goes through it very clearly. And so in what we're going to look at today, Mark gives three examples of the differences between the rule-following religious leaders and the relationship-building Jesus. And so we're going to look at these three examples that Mark gives. And the first one comes in Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 20. So John's disciples, remember John the baptizer, right? He came first. He was the Elijah that was to come, that was promised. He prepared the way for Jesus to come. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. John had disciples. He had men who followed him, women who followed him and paid attention to what he said and tried to live the way that he was living or the way he prescribed to live. John's disciples and the Pharisees were on opposite sides of the spectrum, right? When the Pharisees come to John at the Jordan River, John says, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? You, you, guys are the ones who are, you guys are the ones who are supposed to burn. I don't know why you're here. I'm not here to talk to you. John's disciples and the Pharisees did not get along. And yet here, John's disciples and the Pharisees were both fasting. 
And the people came and they said to him, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, these two groups that oppose one another, why do they fast, but your disciples do not fast? So even these enemies are doing the same thing. Why aren't you guys? You're a rabbi, you're a teacher. Why aren't you following the rules? That's what they're asking. Why aren't you doing what everybody else is doing? Why aren't you following or obeying the rules? And so Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And if you just heard that or read it, and you're like, uh, man, I feel like I'm pretty fast. That is not the kind of fast we're talking about here. The, the word fast here in, in the Bible means to refrain from eating for a period of time. So the people come and they say to Jesus, John's disciples and the Pharisees are avoiding food because that's the rule for this period of time. Why aren't your disciples doing this. Now, Mark Moore, in his commentary on the life of Jesus, says this, that there was only one commanded fast per year, according to God. So the rule from God was one fast once a year, one time where they avoided food for a prescribed period of time, and that happened on the Day of Atonement, a special feast day uh, for the people of Israel. But the Pharisees, and apparently John's disciples, because they were scared of them, fasted, they avoided food every Monday and every Thursday. So the rule was, once a year, you're to fast, but the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday, and they did this to prove to everybody else around them how spiritual they were. Now, if you know a Christian rule follower, you understand what this is like. Because Christian rule followers are really happy and quite uh, comfortable with telling you about all the ways that they're following the rules, how spiritual they are. Look at all the things I'm, I'm doing. In fact, the Pharisees would go so far as to say, um, look, I, here's all the things I do. Jesus actually gives this example of a Pharisee who goes to pray in a public square. And as he prays, he says, God, I thank you that I'm such a wonderful person, that I fast twice a week, that I give a tenth even of my spices, mint and dill and cumin. N number one, um, God doesn't care about spices. Not worried about that. It's not into that. God cares about our tithing of spices about as much as he cares who's going to win the football games that are going to be on today. Does not care. Okay? It's not, doesn't matter to him. He's not interested. And I think when we go, God, please let my team win. He's just like, what do you think I am? It's ridiculous. So the Pharisees were so into rule following that because they wanted everybody else to know how spiritual they were that they even made up rules to follow that weren't rules from God. So they, had, they hated breaking the rules, but they had no problem adding more rules to the rules of God and then pretending like their rules were the rules, right? So there's an expected obligation here. So the people come to Jesus and they say, look, 
You're not following, you're not doing the obligation to fast like all these other, like you must not be as spiritual as these other guys. Now, people of faith, that's, that's you and me, right? We can fall into this trap uh, really easily. And, and here's how it typically works. A follower of Jesus becomes really passionate about something. Um, they become really passionate about serving in kids' ministry or really passionate about being a part of the welcome team or, or about being a part of the, the worship team or, or, or being gym and running a camera. They become really passionate about the thing that they feel like God has called them to do. They find great fulfillment in it and, it, and it's wonderful. It, it, like they come like, this is the greatest thing in my life when I get to serve in this area, or when I get to give, um, when I get to love on people, when I get to share my faith with somebody, whatever it is that they're really passionate about, their gift, their service, their ministry, they can become so passionate about it, they begin to act like everybody else who's a believer should be doing the same thing that they are doing. And if if you're not doing the same thing that I am doing and I'm passionate about in ministry, then you aren't as spiritual as I am. Do you see how that works? It, it, would, it would be like me um, saying, uh, uh, look, God has called me to, to be a, a pastor and, and, and so this is what I'm doing because this is just what I feel like God wants me to do. But I am so passionate about this that I think all of you should do this too. And so you all go out and plant churches and be your own preachers and we're just gonna all do the same thing. And if you don't, you're not nearly as spiritual as I am. Now that happens all the time in church. It, it happens in this church. Happens in the churches down the street. Happens in the churches in Augusta and Eureka and everywhere else. Because we get passionate about what God has called us to do, we begin to think that everybody else must kind of do, must have to do the same thing. And, and what happens then, that kind of thinking, right? If, if I'm the one thinking that, that kind of thinking makes me the king and not Jesus. Because then I'm the one deciding what you should be doing and how you should be serving or giving or whatever else. Now, this has been a really hard thing for me because we, this, this makes life easy for us, right? We want to go, well, if you're not doing this, then I'm better than you. That's how it works. We need to um, understand, though, that the gospel, or remember the gospel, the word gospel means good news, that the gospel frees us from ritual. So these obligation things that we have to do, the gospel frees us from those. And so Jesus says, uh, look, we don't have to fast. The king is here. It's not time. It's not time to fast, it's time to celebrate. It's not time to fast, it's time to feast. That's what Jesus was, was really saying. Like, you've got, it, you've got it wrong. The rule doesn't apply here. And so the gospel frees us from ritual. It frees us from obligation. And then because it frees us from those obligations, it helps us to respond to opportunities as they come. And so I can't do that because I'm following the rule. Now, now I can go, oh, there's an opportunity for me to serve, for me to love, for me to do this thing. I can do that. I can step in 
and do that. All right, let's look at a um, second example that Mark gives in uh, chapter two. He says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. So Jesus is walking through the grain fields. His disciples are, are with him. And his disciples begin to pluck the heads of grain as they were walking through the field. And the Pharisees, because it always seems to be Pharisees, um, like that rule-following kid I had that always seemed to be there going, you did that wrong and that wrong and that wrong. That's the Pharisees. They always seem to be around. So the Pharisees saw what were going on and, and they said, look, why are they, the disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, now the law of the Sabbath was that you weren't to work and part of work was cooking, making a meal. And so um, all the cooking had to be done on Friday so that on Saturday you didn't work accidentally and cook something. So why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Because you're taking heads of grain and you're threshing them in your hand so that you can eat the kernels that is work to them. And Jesus said to them, if you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. Now, this bread was made every morning and it was put on the table of bread in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Um, and, and it was solemn. The, the only people who could eat it were the priests who had gone through the ritual cleansing ceremonies and, and they were uh, acceptable to eat the bread. And they could only eat the bread when the new bread was brought out the next day and then that bread that was holy and given to God was then given to the, the priests, the priests and the Levites, to eat. So you had to, be a, you had to be a priest from Aaron or you had to be a Levite in order to eat it. But David comes in and he, eat, he and his men eat this bread that had been in the tabernacle and it's not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And then he also gave it to those who were with him and he said to them, Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So this Second confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, again, is over rules about food. The first was about their own personal rule concerning fasting or avoiding food in order to focus on God. This time, it was about a Sabbath rule that God did give them about not working on, uh, on Saturday, the Sabbath, by cooking a meal. I don't know if you've ever threshed grain in your hand and, and eaten it. I have done that um, before. It's not really work. It's not much at all. And so here, Jesus gives them a history lesson that all of the Pharisees were very familiar with. Only um, when they taught about David going into the tabernacle and eating the bread of the presence... The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they over-spiritualized that. They made it into like an allegory or a metaphor, and they talked about all the ways in which David and his men somehow were able to um, be part of the priesthood or something so that they didn't break the rule. Because in their mind, you, it, it was a rule. You had to follow the rule. And so they had to spiritually take all of these left turns in order to get to a place where they said, well, David and his men could eat the bread because of whatever is mitigating 
circumstance here. And so it was acceptable for them to eat this consecrated food. In reality, as Jesus alludes to here, there's no mitigating factor uh, for David and his men. They were hungry. They might have been at risk for death if they didn't get something to eat. And because God cares deeply for his creation, he allowed them to break the rule in order to respond to a need. This is the way God loves. Much later, many years later, James, the brother of Jesus, would would write this in in his book. He would say, um, if somebody comes to you and they don't have clothes or daily food, and you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, when you have the means to help, but you do not help meet their physical needs, What good have you done? So the religious leaders would have said, "Um, I'm sorry, I can't break this rule in order to give you food or clothing or whatever it is that you need. And so I'm exempt from helping you. I'm exempt from this relationship because I'm following the rules. And Jesus says, even God doesn't do that. Even God prioritizes relationships. So the religious leaders would see the disciples impoverished by a lack of food or physical needs, but Jesus wanted them empowered to fulfill the ministry that he had called them to. And so the gospel frees us from rules. Now, don't freak out about that. Because that doesn't mean you get to run out the door and you get to just do whatever you want to. It it means that the rules don't trump everything else. It means that relationships and rules have to be considered together. Love God, love others, and how do I do that? How do I mix those two and do that together? So the gospel frees us from rules that ignore relationships. All right, let's look at the third one, Mark chapter three. Again, he entered the synagogue And a man was there with a withered hand, and uh, they watched, the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So um, it it may not be the next Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. That's when they went to the temple. That's when they couldn't cook food. They couldn't walk a certain distance. Um, They had all these rules to not work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is in in the temple on the Sabbath, and they were looking to see whether Jesus would heal this person with a withered hand on the Sabbath and so break the rule of the Sabbath. That's what they were thinking. And they did, they were looking at him, they were watching him so that they might accuse him. And Jesus knew this, and so he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, and then he looked at the religious leaders and said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, the religious leaders. And so Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of of heart, their hardness of heart that they would follow the rules when there was a man in need. And so Jesus says to the man in front of the religious leaders in the synagogue on the Sabbath, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Okay, here's the work that was involved in that. The man stood up and he stretched out his hand and it was restored. It took no power. 
Like when you watch super, uh, uh, superhero movies, um, and like think about the Green Lantern. You remember the Green Lantern? This is when I was a kid. Green Lantern is a big. Green Lantern, uh, after a while, his energy, the power in his ring would wear down and you'd have to recharge it. So all these superheroes, um, even Superman, if he gets around Kryptonite, Kryptonite, right? Then it, their power fades and they have to get recharged somehow. This cost Jesus nothing. When you have ultimate unlimited power, doesn't make any difference. So Jesus didn't break a sweat here, right? It didn't affect him at all. Just stretched out his hand and it was restored and the Pharisees went out immediately. They caught up and they ran out of the building because they were so furious and they held counsel with the Herodians, their enemies, about how they might destroy or kill Jesus. So if you're following along, by this encounter, this third encounter here in Mark, the religious leaders are now actively looking for reasons to reject the things that Jesus taught, claiming that he didn't follow the rules, and so no one should listen to what he had to say. So here's a, a man suffering with a, with a withered hand. Now, whether that was a, a physical deformity that he was born with a birth defect or a workplace accident, the people of his day superstitiously believed that any such physical defect like that was a, a direct result of uh, God's action in their life because of some secret sin that the individual had committed or their parents had committed. So when they look at this man with the withered hand, they don't see a man with a, with a problem, a struggle, a challenge that needs to be overcome. They see a man who is a sinner or who was born from sinners and God punished him for his sin. Now, because they looked at him that way, they could avoid helping him because they would say, according to the rules, God rejected this man. God did this, so I don't have to help him. If God wants him helped, God will heal him, which is, by the way, exactly um, what happens in, in the story. So because of this belief, the religious leaders could avoid any association with the lame person, citing their sinful nature as their just punishment for sin. And so they removed the possibility of relationship in order more closely follow the rules, like don't associate with sinners. Now the religious leaders used the rules to ignore those who didn't measure up to their own level of spirituality. But Jesus used this as an opportunity to restore the man back into those relationships where people didn't hold his supposed sin over his head. Now this man has a restored hand. He has no physical challenge or deformity. And when people look at him, they don't immediately go, oh, this man must have sinned somehow. So he's restored relationally back to his family and his friends. And, and so the gospel frees us to respond to needs instead of rejecting the needy. And so the gospel... The good news about Jesus the King, it responds, it doesn't refuse. And so we see Jesus respond to sin instead of refusing the sinner as the religious leader. We see him respond to the need 
instead of refusing the needy as the rule followers did. We see Jesus respond to the opportunities that God puts in his path instead of refusing them out of some supposed obligation. So how do we put this gospel of Jesus to work in our own lives? How do we take these three stories and we go, this is what Jesus did. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we put this to work in our daily lives? What is it that separated Jesus' gospel, this gospel that he presented, from that of the religious, religious leaders? Well, I think the key is found in Mark chapter 2. Jesus says this after that first story we shared. He said, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Because if he does, the patch tears away from it and the new, uh, from the old, and a worse tear is made. And also, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's the takeaway there. We can't live our old lives and expect new outcomes. We can't live the way we always have and expect to get something different. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can't decide, I'm going to follow Jesus and then live the same life you've always lived and expect God to do amazing things in your life. If you're a follower of, of Jesus, you can't continue to go on following the rules and making sure at the end of the day, I've done everything right and good, and so God is happy with me and expect there to be any expansion of the kingdom of God. Expect to fulfill the gospel call on, on your life. We can't continue to do the same things we've always done and expect a different outcome. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, you're basing your life on this set of rules, but you need to understand that from the beginning, God wanted relationship with his creation. He didn't want you just to follow the rules. He wanted you to apply those rules into the relationships so that you are better and everybody else is, is better. So what we learn from Jesus' um, gospel, I think there's, there's um, three things that we, um, that we learn here. And the first is this, that the gospel is an opportunity, it's not an obligation. The gospel is an opportunity, not an obligation. So we shouldn't go through the rest of this week going, oh man, okay, I've got I've to tithe and I've got to serve and I've got to help old lady cross the street and I've got, wait, that's the Boy Scouts, not Jesus. Um, and then I've got to, you know, I've got to help somebody, my neighbor, and I've got to take care of this, I've got to get the trash can, like all of those things. The gospel doesn't make us feel like we're obligated to do all these things. The gospel says, look for the opportunities that God puts in your life and then step into those. Whatever, God, whatever door God opens up this week, there's an opportunity for you to be Jesus in that moment of that situation, for you to make present the kingdom of God by living according to the rules in the life that you're in so that other people can see Jesus and want to be a part of his kingdom. And so the gospel is an opportunity, not an obligation. Secondly, what we learn from Jesus' gospel is that it empowers, it doesn't impoverish. It empowers, it doesn't impoverish. And this is one of the problems that a lot of people outside of the church have with the church today. Because for many years, we've tried to impoverish people that didn't agree with us. They didn't think the same way we thought. And so just like the Pharisees, we'd follow the rules. And we go, we're following the rules and you're not following the rules. You're a dirty sinner going to hell and so I don't have to do anything for you. 
And Jesus comes along and says, no, the gospel is about empowering people to live the life that God called them to. We, we say it this way, to help every person possible find real life in, in Jesus, to empower them to live the life that Jesus called them to live, a life of freedom and hope and forgiveness. Instead of leaving them in their impoverished state and go, I know I'm not going to do anything with you because you're a sinner. Third thing, Jesus' gospel restores, it doesn't ignore. And that's the difficult part. But being a Christian and being in the world today, it's messy. Because in order for us to fulfill the Great Commission, in order for us to do what Jesus said to do, to love God and love others, we have to be involved with others. There has to be relationship there. And so the gospel, it restores, it doesn't ignore because we can just come to church on Sunday and we can feel really good about ourselves and we can go home tonight and go, well, God, I followed the rules. I put a little money in the offering. I showed up to church today. Maybe I helped pack up at the end of the day or I served in a ministry or something. And so I've done my good deeds. I've followed the rules. I'm okay. And, and God's going, but did you do any of that for somebody else? Because as we love others, we love God. And so if your gospel doesn't result in good, it's not the gospel of God. I'm going to say that again. If your gospel doesn't result in good, not doing good, helping others, restoring and empowering and taking advantage of opportunities, it's not the gospel of God. And that's why Mark first says, you, chapter one, the beginning, you believe and repent and follow Jesus or look more like him every day. And, and this is how we look like Jesus. We seize opportunities to empower others and restore them. So here's what we do. We stop trying to be good and we start trying to do good. Being good is about you or me, right? If I'm good, it's about me. I'm good, I'm going to heaven, uh, that's all that matters. But doing good is about others. What have I done? How am I serving? The, the gospel isn't, this is a big one, the gospel isn't about you getting to heaven, it's about heaven getting to others through you. And we, we want to say in, in church, if you were the only person alive, Jesus still would have come and died for you. And that makes me feel really good. Ooh, <laughs> Jesus would have come just for me. I must be special. And that's the wrong message for us. Yes, there is an overwhelming, overwhelming love that God has for us. But the gospel isn't just about me getting to heaven and to hell with everybody else. Because that's kind of how we think a lot. The gospel is about heaven getting to others through me. So people seeing Jesus in us as we make present the kingdom of God in their lives by following the rules. The religious leaders thought it was about them doing good enough or doing enough good. Then they didn't do any good. They just tried to be good. If I'm good, I'm okay and I'm going to heaven. But Jesus says that we're to be a kingdom of priests, that we all are to help others see Jesus through us, empowering and restoring them at every opportunity. 
What got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders of his day, the religious elite of his day, was his focus on relationships, not rules. Jesus completely changed the lens through which people evaluated their religion. Instead of asking, do do I or did I do everything right today? The question becomes, did I do any good for anyone today? This is why we read in James 1, true religion is this, to take care of the widows and the orphans and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. This is what scripture is. This is living for Jesus. This is being a disciple, following Jesus in the way that we interact with other people. And so I want to leave you just with this today. What good can you do this week to somebody else, for somebody else? Because that's where that true religion lies. If it gets into me and then through me to somebody else. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and thank you for your incredible forgiveness and mercy and grace that, that washes over us. And God, forgive us when we think that, um, that religion, that Christianity, that Jesus is just a for us or about us. And help us to see in Jesus the way to live, the way to prioritize relationships in our lives. And not just follow the rules, but be open to what you're doing. God, we want to help every person possible find real life in your son, Jesus. And the only way that that's going to happen is when we look more like Jesus every day. And so help us, Father, um, to do that. Help us to love others well. And and here's the cool thing about that, God. We don't have to have a permanent home to love other people. We can do that here. We can do that outside. We can do that um, wherever and however. When the people of God live by the kingdom of God, we make present that kingdom in the lives of others. And then they will see you in us and through us And hopefully God will fill heaven. Thank you for this day, this week, this opportunity to love others well in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hey, next week we're wrapping up the Disciple Series and then it will be February and we are gonna start a relationship series called EXO. That will be fun. I'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.